I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. dog donut will very likely be just hanging out in front of the camera blocking my face the entire time so that's that's okay that's I, I just listened to the episode with carolyn with the honorable carolyn bennett and okay. uh and she uh she also exclaimed about donuts <laughs> she just arriving on scene so she, i was prepared for donut <laughs> she did you know it's, it's I funny think donut threw her off a little bit and he then did, that's yeah. why she was like oh a dog <laughs> <laughs> no, I, and then uh, you got the full background on her on her laps that's right, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. you know it's it's funny you say that sally because i um in in kind of going through the the prep notes of of the conversation that we're going to be having today uh, one of the things that first came to my mind was I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what her thoughts would be about the conversation that we had with um, Carolyn. And, um, and I'm glad you brought that up. And I guess I, before we get into the meat of everything, well, first of all, let's introduce you, Sally, the Director of Policy at the Canadian Association of Social Workers. Um, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We're excited to have a conversation with you. Um, what were your thoughts on that conversation? Because, you know, as f- three dudes who like, you know, a theater school dropout, a, a fucking p- former real estate agent and a, I don't know. A, and a man who just had a baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Fresh. Uh, we, we went into that conversation. You know, we had some questions for her, obviously. There's uh, over the six years of doing this show, we've we've come to realize that there's a lot of gaps in the mental health system mm-hmm. here in Canada. And so, you know, we didn't want to we didn't want that to be a, a fluff piece for the government by any by any mm-hmm. mean, means. Um, but I, I did as someone who, you know, a lay person who is not working in the field of mental health um, uh, officially by any means. I came away with, from that conversation feeling, you know, two, with two feelings. One, which is, you know, whenever you talk to a fucking politician, a lot of stuff is vague. It, you know, a lot of things you go, okay, well, I guess like you kind of answered that question, but not really. You with said an a answer. lot and yeah. said nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there were moments in that conversation where I, I felt like, oh, wow. Okay. I, I wasn't expecting to hear that. Mm-hmm. And, and I do feel a little bit um, optimistic, which I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. usually the pessimist out of the group. Um, Even the creation of the role, I guess, in and of itself mm-hmm. is kind of a, yeah. it speaks for itself in some, in some ways. So as, as someone who is a, a you know, is you know, knee deep in policy when it comes mm-hmm. to um, mental health. Uh, what were your feelings on that conversation? What did you take away from it? How did you feel about some of the stuff that she was saying? First of all, I just want to say I'm really happy to be here. I'm, I'm honored to be here. And also I have to, 
I, of course, I'm fair, I'm familiar with the podcast, but following up the Honorable Carolyn Bennett, and then also looking at some of your past episodes that are, you know, like like sex in space and drinking pee. I was like, oh boy, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get uh, the social determinants of health as they apply to mental health to be quite as sexy. I will do my best. Uh, but what I would say, what you've just identified, that sort of like duality or binary of feelings in response to having uh, Minister Bennett on the show is very common in the sort of political or the advocacy landscape's response to the liberal government, uh, which is that the the cynics, um, I guess, would say that they think that the liberal government is is really good at sort of adopting the language of, of advocates mm. and adopting the language that they think uh, is what we want to hear and then not acting on it. Mm. Whereas the optimists, which I would say I would be I would be on that side. I'd be on the optimist side um, would say that they're at least they're talking about it. They're doing their best. And this is a really comp. If this was a simple problem, it would be solved. Mm. Uh, and so it's a really complex problem. And so they they aren't quite sure exactly how to move forward, which can cause. And it's a big machine, the federal government, of course, and so is mental health policy. So they aren't quite, you know, always sure how to proceed, which leads to some sort of natural, not necessarily paralysis, but stagnation. And so the other thing I'll say too is that uh, there's a difference between, you know, like. Carolyn Bennett, the person, yeah. and like she was, I, I was, I, I'm like, a, she's great. Like she mm-hmm. was speaking really candidly about her experiences, and you know, uh, her her father's perspective on prohibition and the decriminalization of drugs, which mm. I also just quickly say we can talk about that later. But yeah, it's my 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 association, the Canadian Association of Social Workers, is very much for the full decriminalization of of, of drugs. Uh, and so, you know, hearing all that is super, super heartening, but knowing that she doesn't necessarily represent, though she has this very important leadership role, she doesn't necessarily speak for during this podcast and ever, even ever the political machine, which is the government of Canada mm. or even the Liberal Party or even the Liberal Caucus. And so something that was very interesting about the timing of, of, of her appearance on your show is that I don't know when it was recorded, but it, it aired on June 1st, which was the day that the liberals, uh, the, the whole liberal cabinet voted against Bill C-216, which was a bill that would, if passed, would have decriminalized drugs in Canada, small mm. amounts of drugs for personal use, uh, as well as expunged criminal records for, for uh, possession of small amounts of drugs, and also initiated a strategy, a, a mental health and substance use strategy in Canada. So what, the, the what, timing the was interesting. That, what's the difference there in terms of uh, that's a that's a federal that would be a federal legislation versus like what they did in BC provincial. They they did something recently in BC that um, decriminalized like small amounts of. Day, yes. I think. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it was like two days before they voted against Bill C two sixteen federally uh, that uh, that they announced that they were allowing this exemption to BC. So what happened there is that. Um, all the power to to Vancouver, all the power to BC for taking on this leadership on their own account and saying and asking the federal government for this exemption. So basically, the province asked, "We would like you to exempt uh, in the criminal code the possession of small amounts of drugs." They asked for, I hope I'm not talking of turn, but they asked for something like 4.5 grams or something like that. And the federal government didn't go quite that far. They gave them a little bit less than that. Uh, so a lot of advocates are not actually pleased with the total amount for the exemption because they just mm-hmm. think like uh, there was a quote in, in one news story that was really good. That was like, you know, a seasoned 
user is going to take that much for breakfast. And so <laughs> like they're going, they we're going to need a bigger exemption if we're going to have any sort of impact on, on stigma and, and on the law. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the difference being that what's happening now and once again, you get into that sort of cynic optimist question where what the liberal government's public uh, response to that is like, why are you allowing the exemption for BC, but you're voting against this idea for application again in the rest of Canada is crazy. they're saying, yeah, I will, I will explain both sides. Um, uh, uh, is that uh, they're saying it's better if this is, you know, a made in uh, a regional approach provinces know what's what's best for themselves and so they know what to ask for and we will we're, we're, we're glad to see this roll out slowly and responsibly in regions across Canada uh, to oh you know okay that's 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 one approach to which I think uh, you know I would probably say we haven't been successful doing it in silos and what's the point of the federal government if not leadership like bold leadership mm. uh, and giving some direction so you know, this was a, they, they have, they shirked an opportunity to, um, to be the ones leading as opposed mm-hmm. for waiting to the provinces to all individually ask for what they want. And, and, so, when, like, and when they, when, when, when you do something like in a province like BC, which, which I'm sure statistically has, has the most, uh, has the biggest problem with like one of opi- them, yes. o- o- yeah. opioid use and addiction and, and homelessness and all this stuff. Like, yeah. It's like, well, if it's if 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 it's if it's if we see it as a good thing to give at least some exemption to them, in a in a place where the problem has basically run away mm-hmm. from 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 being able to be handled, essentially, then wouldn't wouldn't the thought <laughs> wouldn't the logical thought be that that would probably be an, a a good thing to do for every province that maybe hasn't gotten to that point yet of like of a runaway problem that can't be prevented solved? before it happens, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yes. Um, I, so what they so now you're like uh, now you're gonna have me. Uh, I'm not gonna give my 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 opinion on the inner workings of the liberal political strategic machine, but you know there's different opinions on on why that happened. What they've said, what what Minister Bennett has said publicly is that they voted against that bill because it didn't have enough safeguards. Um, to which then the advocacy community would probably say back. Uh, you weren't voting. I'll just to give some more context on what that vote was. They weren't voting to make it law. It wasn't. It wasn't at nearly at that stage. What they were voting for was to send it to committee, uh, which is where it would be studied. So that's where mm. it would have been fantastic to have it studied, mm-hmm. because they could have made amendments to it to give it those safeguards that they, you know, ostensibly say they want. Um, and it would have been. It would have been an opportunity for people with lived experience, associations like mine, like people with like people with mental health and substance use providers um, to come in and talk about what they would like to see in a bill like that or in a strategy like that. So it would have been amazing. It wouldn't have just made it reality all of a sudden, you know, mm-hmm. um, so they, they could have put those guardrails in. Now, like people, you know, pundits will probably would probably say like, with the emphasis that the liberals have put on uh, and credit where it's due, like they have put a ton of, influ- of, of emphasis on on uh, on mental health, that they probably want to be the ones to bring a strategy, right? Mm-hmm. And they probably don't want to follow the lead of an NDP bill uh, in developing that. So that would be sort of a cynical p- political pundit's take on it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying where I fall. I just um, uh, there's different re- political reasons uh, why 
that occurred. Sally, can you can you explain um, from like the perspective you mentioned that uh, the Canadian Association of Social Workers is for the decriminalization of uh, hard drugs? Can you explain like why that is important, especially from the perspective of social workers? Because criminalization doesn't work, uh, it, and it actually makes it worse. Um, not only does it make it worse for everyone, it particularly doubles down and attacks uh, marginalized people. Mm-hmm. So people that are experiencing intersectional forms of oppression, right? So we have an egregious and unacceptable number of black and indigenous people incarcerated, uh, which who many of whom have drug related offenses for like the most small, like just silly amounts of of, Mm -hmm. of drugs like personal possession of of drugs for personal use the other reason is philosophical so so practically it doesn't work and social Mm -hmm. workers see that it doesn't work right we're on the ground we're just like this is not this is not deterring anyone and then the other reason philosophically is that it's not a criminal issue it's a health issue right why why are we criminalizing something you know it's it's a personal health issue, if anything, or a public health issue. It doesn't make any sense for it to be criminalized, uh, and it and it's killing people. The stigma related mm. with the stigma is, is killing people, and um, we know that decriminalizing it would would go such a long way in saving people's lives and helping to address not fully address the opioid crisis, but it would be a huge mm. check in the box. In in terms of like the work that you do, um, and and may and you know maybe maybe to get to that, um, I'll I'll lead with this question. But you know the, the the thing that we're kind of gathering through these types of conversations that we're having is that like we're we're not going to have good mental health in this country unless we have like really robust social supports. Um, and so you're you're saying that like decriminalization of 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 drugs is is one of those those answers because the, what we're doing right now doesn't fucking work. Yeah. Um, what 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 are like what are the social supports that that in theory um, we would hope to see that really could make an impact and actually could work um, outside of just decriminalizing drugs? Yeah. So that's that is a like a that's a criminal legal option that doesn't technically fall under the, the, the social, the broader social determinants of health, right? Mm. So the to- social determinants of health are things like food security, housing, income, race, um, those sort of like soft social supports that make up your safety net. And I'm, I, podcast listeners won't be able to see me, but I'm putting that in scare quotes because I hate the term safety net because mm. it is a language really matters. Like if there's anything I learned in this, in this job and also, you know, social workers know is language really matters. Uh, that the social safety net, it, it allows us to think, oh, it's just normal that people will just fall. Silly people, they'll mm-hmm. just fall and then, you know, we'll catch them, but there's holes in the net. <laughs> like we need to be moving to this idea of a stable foundation that we all just stand on. Mm-hmm. Why, are we, why are we accepting that everyone's falling into nets? Like it just doesn't... Um, Anyway, but uh, that's what a really the, good point. What would <laughs> yeah. it's it's just it's uh it's mean, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and um, anyway, but so what would those supports what would those supports be, right? So I always sort of say like when you're talking to doctors uh, and other kinds of mental health clinicians, one of the, about mental health, one of the things they'll say is you know it's really important to look at the pathology, right? Like it's really lo- important to look at um, whether or not someone experiencing, for instance, depression 
It's if it's a clinical diagnosis of depression or whether something really sad happened to them. Like, did someone just die? That's probably not depression. It may become depression, mm. but it's a, it's, a, it's a societal or a social force in their life that's causing this. Same thing with like anxiety. Do they have generalized anxiety disorder or is something that's making them really anxious and that's happening in their lives? That's actually a completely normal response. So what, to, to what I would say is like the, the kids are not all right. Not even the, like the adults are not all right. The pets are probably not all right in Canada. Like nobody's all right. And it's because we are living under the, like it's getting harder and harder to differentiate between what is like a clinical diagnosis and what is just life run awry mm -hmm. under late stage capitalism and the pandemic and et cetera. So mm -hmm. like this all brings me back to your question of what do we need? Is someone going to have good mental health if they're struggling to pay off their student loans? They're working two jobs. They're insecurely housed. They're like, my rent is coming up. And like, either I pay my rent and my electricity or I get my medication, you know, and like, I can barely pay for daycare and I'm not affording healthy food. Like, are you going to be mentally well? Mm. Like, I would, I would posit that no amount of talk therapy or like the right medication is going to get you out of that situation. Mm -hmm. That is a failure, failure of that quote safety net. So we need things like, so just as one example, uh, that CSW, my association uh, advocates for is this idea of a basic income, which at its most basic level is just giving people money, like giving people money to live. And I know that that, sound, that sounds uh, like really radical, I guess, you know, but to that, I say it's, it, it's, first of all, it's not the boogeyman. It is a logical extension of the supports that we already have in Canada. And I would just sort of remind everyone that everything we do in society is, is um, we decided. Mm. None of it is a natural law of the world. Like we decided to have maternity leave. We decided to pay for school mm. for kids from four to 18. We why, why those ages? We decided. <laughs> we, we decided to have healthcare. Uh, but not cover mental health and not cover, you know, some pharmaceuticals and not cover optometry and not cover dent dental. Mm. We just because we decided other countries have decided different things. These aren't this isn't like gravity. This is policies that that we made. And so just in that way. And those are all things that we give to people. And that and that seemed radical before we had them. Maternity mm -hmm. leave seemed mm -hmm. radical before that happened. Healthcare seemed radical before that happened. Whereas we could just decide that we are going to make it so nobody falls below the poverty line, no matter the circumstances. There's just enough to go around that people can get by with the basics. Mm -hmm. Sally, some, something that Minister Bennett said um, that that I was that I was uh, that really surprised me. And I'm wondering if you have any if you have any further insight on this is uh, I, I I asked a question or some one of us asked a question about um, about basically like wh why why is healthcare uh, or why why is mental health care not wrapped up in our system of health care that you go to the hospital and receive treatment for, you know, it, it, just like an emergency room for your for mental health like that. You know, why is that and all the services that go along with their talk therapy or whatever type of uh, of of therapy that is needed. Why is that not wrapped up in the healthcare system? And, and she said uh, so, that in the eighties or nineties, 
that it was wrapped up in it. And then there was a, a force that basically separated out all of these things and forced them into the private sector and unraveled them from the uh, public sector. And that part of her uh, job and her and her, and her kind of perfect world scenario is that those things would all get rewrapped up into the healthcare system over time. And how to do that is challenging. What, what, like, do you have any more insight on that? Cause that really kind of blew my mind that we had it and we let it go. So how, 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 how accurate is that? Uh, so that, I mean, it's really complex, but that's, that's fairly accurate. Now it's, it's not that I wouldn't want to hearken back to thinking about a time of the Canada Health Act, like, you know, let's say pre-80s or something and, and thinking like, oh, it was idyllic, you know, like mm-hmm. we had yeah. health, we had mental health. That was a time of, 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 um, of we relied heavily on institutionalization, both of people with, uh, with mental health concerns and substance use concerns and also uh, people, this is a different conversation, but people with, with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so th- uh, this movement away from institutionalization, which has been, um, which has been really positive in some ways, because uh, it allows people to live with like more freedom and dignity and things like that, um, also coincided with austerity measures that were like seen across the Western world in the 80s. Like think of, I mean, you can think of lots of examples in the States and in Canada uh, where just we just were cutting spending, basically. Um, and so th- that those parts of treatment, so mental health treatment, uh, got pushed into the private sector. So now it's just this naturalized thing in Canada where the the amount of events and stuff that I go to where <laughs> we just will talk about employee extended employee employee health benefits and how we need to improve extent like we the collective need to improve employee extended health benefits so that people have better access to mental health care sort of ignoring the conversation the fact that the people who probably need mental health care the most probably don't have jobs that have extended health care benefits. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And like, also what about people that have no job? What about, what about people who may never be able to work? Like what about they all to, to me and to my association, they all have inherent value and should qualify for the same supports and programs that anybody else qualifies for. Mm. Um, so I, I was like, I also listened to that with, with, with her comments on that with like great interest because I have not really, heard or seen a concrete plan to rewrap those practitioners back into the public, the the public delivery system. Now I'm not going to be too harsh on that because it will be quite, quite the undertaking uh, because of how much we rely on the, on the private sector, like with, you know, um, the insurance industry basically uh, and how, how divorced that that has become from our, from our public system. So one of the things that CSW, my association, Canadian Association of Social Workers, is, is asking for, actually, it's part of a broad, broader coalition. We're also part of the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. Um, and that's a group of uh, a bunch of b- bunch of national organizations that represent both um, providers of, of mental health and substance use services and then also people with lived experience. So it's a cool organization, but anyway, what we support or advance the idea that we advance through them is this idea of mental health parity. So we're saying, which parity would mean that there would be equal treatment of mental health uh, and physical health in Canada. So that just pointing out the idea that if you break your arm, I always use this example because it's so easy. You break your arm, everybody knows what to do. It's obvious. You go to a hospital, you will get treatment. 
you will leave in the day or two, depending on how complex the break is, and you will have a plan. They'll see come back, come back to get the come back to get your cast off and however long and take this medicine and tickety boo. If you have a mental health concern, <laughs> like yeah. uh, you could wait. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for exactly. Exactly. Good luck. Uh, you could wait any amount of time. So it's this idea. We need to study this idea of how do we bring that up to par? And probably one of the recommendations of that would be rewrapping a lot of these practitioners, such as social workers and, and you know, other people into uh, back into the public delivery. Well, it looks like we just crossed 5 million podcasts in the world, so it is with some humility that I introduce mine, Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Once a week, we share heart-to-hearts with smart, good people like Brian Stevenson, Anna Quinlan, Father Greg Boyle, talking about how we treat each other, how we treat ourselves, and how we might do both better. Kelly Corrigan Wonders is a podcast for people who like to laugh while they think and aren't afraid of feelings. Join us for Kelly Corrigan Wonders. Is the biggest Ooh. challenge with that the fact that like I I like the example of the the broken arm because I mean everybody can picture that you break your arm you yeah. go to the hospital you just know that but um, I find when I think of like um, the mental health care process and the system and how you access treatment the first biggest challenge is having people recognize in themselves that they're experiencing a a you know mental health mm -hmm. episode and so. Like, is, is that the first step in helping people recognize when they're in crisis? So what you're, that? <laughs> what you're identifying right now is like, it, it is essentially the stigma, the anti-stigma conversation, right? And that part of not being able to identify something in yourself is one, maybe a lack of education, which is certainly a problem, but also a, like a sort of a internalized stigma or like a self stigma where you're never really like, you know, is this what this is now? Like, mm -hmm. no, it wouldn't happen to me. Uh, and I think we've done really good work in Canada through lots of different initiatives, like both at the in the private sector and also the government of Canada, you know, has done good work there too, in fighting stigma. Like we've done lots of anti-stigma yeah. work. Yeah. But the problem, and it's and not to say that it's done, like we need to keep doing that work, but the problem is that when you reduce stigma and you do start educating people on what it looks like you know what is anxiety like what is depression what are these things you're going to have people coming out of the woodwork in droves as we saw during the pandemic to a system that is not prepared mm -hmm. to accept them they're a system that is not prepared to receive them and treat them and so it's almost like this like it's almost like this it's almost like gaslighting mm. it's like this thing of like oh like here's what mental illness is be brave, come forward. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And they're like, you know what? I'm, you know what? I am having problems. I'm, I'm going to step forward. I'm going to step into the light. I'm going to say, I'm having a struggle. I'm ready to accept the help. And then there's yeah, a vacuum, help. Yeah. nothing there. Like that is, that is not compassionate. That's not effective. So like mm -hmm. they need, we need to accompany these anti-stigma efforts with like equal like an equal force of, of an injection of cash and also research 
uh, and and supports like it's yeah. it's not fair. It's, it's so interesting because um, uh, like uh, Taylor and Jared are now annoyed at how vocal I've been about going to therapy over the past couple of years. Again, it's not that you're vocal. <laughs> talking about it all the, the time. Frequency with which and they're just all. fucking annoyed with it. But the but the interesting thing is like I I get um, messages every week from people who are asking like how, like how like how because I talk about therapy a lot. Yeah. People are like how how did you find your therapist? And I have a message that's copy pasted on my phone of like how I found my therapist. But the other problem, the biggest challenge that that I find is, and the thing I feel the worst about when people are reaching out asking for help and I know they need help mm-hmm. is that I'm telling them like, you'll get a free 60 minute consultation your first time. And then after that, it's like 150 plus dollars an hour every yeah. time you want to go see that. And people just can't afford that. And like, yeah. you know, for me, I was I was lucky enough that with my work benefits I I could mm-hmm. you know do five or six sessions that are that are covered but then after that <laughs> there's yeah. there's there's no help there and most people are in similar situations and like and from my experience of now I pay like I pay for it like a gym membership like yeah. you know if I was going to pay $150 a month for a gym membership would I pay $150 a month to um talk to a therapist and for me now it's uh, it's incredibly worth it but I also acknowledge that I'm in a position where I'm privileged enough to be able to afford yeah. paying for that. And yeah, it's, it fucking but sucks. Th- and doesn't that feel unfair? Like, so, and so unfair. wouldn't you say that the messaging from the liberals, let's say, right. Wouldn't you say that it has been that mental health is just as important in physical health In Trudeau's throne speech yeah, or not in Trudeau's Well, in response to the throne speech, one of the things he said was, um, was, you know, we really want <laughs> mental health to be as important as physical health. And I'm like, you can't, like say that and then have it be that it's actually, you know, in your lived experience, it's like as important as a gym membership. Like, mm-hmm. like if you have a back to the broken arm, like it, no matter, it, it's not like you're like, Oh, your six sessions are up. Mm-hmm. I can't yeah. fix. I'm sorry. We can't yeah. fix your arm. Arm's gonna uh, be like it is. It and took, also like the it's six, gonna be se- broken. the first six sessions in uh, comparing it to the breaking your arm analogy is like having the x-ray done. It's not like yes. having a fucking cast put yeah. on or anything. It's yeah. like it's you're initial just steps. after the six first six sessions, six yeah. sessions, you're just figuring out. You're barely you, getting into it. Like, yeah. yeah, you're just scratching the surface yeah. of what you need so, to be working on. And what you said too. So like you were talking about people not knowing how to find it. Right. And so like, so the Canada, so I'll just, this is a bit of a long-winded way of saying what I'm going to say, but the Canada Health Act, which is, which mental health is not part of right now, but we would sort of ideally want it to be part of, or we would want a separate act that guarantees mental health services to the same standard as the Canada Health Act. So I'll just, the Canada Health Act has all these principles that we have to guarantee, right? And so they're public administration, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, and accessibility. So those are the things that Canadians can anticipate and or have the right to basically when it comes to healthcare. And I would add to that, like I, maybe it falls under accessibility or maybe universality, but like some a principle of obviousnessness uh, of like, like I said before, if you something happens to you physically, you don't need to like quietly ask around to your friends. You don't need to know the right person. You don't need to Google the right thing to be like, where do I go? Like, where's the hospital? Like, it's just, we know mm-hmm. we've been educated society, like societally. That's part of our part of being in a society. It's intrinsic to us. It needs to be like that with mental health. It needs to be like that, that we know where to go. And then there, it also needs to be like that, that there is somewhere to go. Mm-hmm. Mental health practitioners should be embedded everywhere that people are. Like one of the things we see with social work, like great programs that are popping up is 
having social workers or other mental health practitioners in schools, having them in libraries, having them in these public places where it's just, if people are there, help is there basically. Um, mm. Sally, on, on that, on that, uh, on that similar note of like the obviousnessness of, of, <laughs> of, of where we need to go. I'm, I'm always curious uh, when talking to people who work in your, in your field about how, how you have seen the last a decade, but definitely the last like five, six, seven years in terms of like the shift in our understanding and like the very clear shift, like from uh, corporations through things like Bell Let's Talk and just like the general sort of attitude towards mental health that seems to be shifting more awareness, more openness, shame uh, reduction, you know, shame reduction, mm-hmm. less stigma. Like it seems to be, it seems to be happening. Um, but I'm always curious about how people in your field sort of have viewed the last. Uh, decade or half decade in terms of how things have shifted in the mental health, like awareness space? I would say that it has been a, um, I don't know if roller coaster is the right word, like, and then there's going to be different experiences at the, at the policy level. Like, so I am, I am a registered social worker, but I, I work in policy. And so I will probably have a different experience than a social worker on the ground, you know, working in the front line would have, um, so like, oh, you know, over the past 10 years, like starting the Harper government was longer than 10 years ago, but they did credit where credit is due, put in the Mental Health Commission of Canada, which sort of started a lot of this like federal conversation around uh, stigma, stigma reduction and some programming and things like that. And then since then, with the, with the liberals getting elected, once again, kudos to them for a lot of the work that they've done. Uh, we've seen, like, a, a, like you just said, a ton of work in stigma reduction um, and things like that now. What's happening at the same time is that, like I said before, wonderful. We're so happy that people are are figuring this out, that people are thinking that they can come forward. They're going to start asking for help, but there's not enough help. And so what we're seeing, I don't know if you've heard of, I'm sure you've heard of this, like the news and stuff, but like the great resignation Mm -hmm. in the healthcare sector, right? Where healthcare professionals, health and social care professionals, social workers included, are burning out. Like, and I don't, and I hesitate to even use the word burnout because it doesn't seem strong enough. It's like they're having moral injury and which is this idea that you, people like the doctors, nurses, social workers, they go into these fields because they have, they want to help people. Uh, And so they get in there and then people are coming to them in droves, especially throughout the pandemic. Although the pandemic does grind my gears a little bit because there's always this narrative that the pandemic (laughs) made everything so much, the pandemic caused it. The pandemic, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, no, no, Mm -hmm. the pandemic may have worsened it, but all these problems existed before. But anyway, especially during the pandemic, people are coming out in droves trying to get this help, trying to get supports, not only just direct mental health supports, but like, you know, you go to a social worker for maybe something mental health and you're also like, I'm also having trouble like feeding my family and I'm also having trouble, um, you know, getting medication for my son and and I'm also having trouble, you know, with my, like, I don't have money for my bus pass to get to my job. And the social workers are just like, all I want to do is help you, but the system, I don't have a way to help you. Yeah. And that, that um, cognitive dissonance, like of not being, a, not being equipped with the, the structures in place to help the people the way they needed to be helped is part of what is causing this great, mm. this, this burnout and this great recognition of people being like, I'm out. Like, yeah. this is too hard yeah. in a way that I did not sign up for.
are there other are there other places in the world that that have like a focus or have like put study into mental health parity and and are are doing it fucking right? <laughs> so I so it's always a hard question to ask. Like the answer. So there's the answer is yes. Other countries are doing it. So U.S. actually has has some work on on mental health parity. Not that they're you know idyllic. Um, Australia. Uh, the UK also has done a lot of work in that. Um, but the problem is whenever you talk about these other places, they're so different from Canada. Mm. And it's very easy to look at a place like the UK with a centralized uh, healthcare system like the NHS and say, like, wouldn't it be great if we could do X and Y? And we're like, ah, but in Canada, we have this federated model where we are asking the federal government to be leaders, but also knowing that the primary responsibility for health delivery and social care delivery is in the provinces. So it becomes very complex that way, which is why we're, what we're asking for is for the federal government not to implement anything right away, is to study mm. what a made in Canada approach to mental health parity would be in Canada. How, do, how would we bring them up to par? How do we do it? How do we get the practitioners back into the public health care system? what where do we need the funding what programs do we need to bring in mm. we don't have the answers we're asking them to to study it. it it is a it is an issue of funding like i'll just throw out some um like so for instance we spent we always think like canada spends so much money on health care right like i think that's just a narrative that we all have like it's 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 really it's not fully true <laughs> um so like we we spend about 4.6% of our total health spending on mental health and, Whoa. and, uh, other G7 countries. So France does 15%, United Kingdom, 13%. Those are just two other examples. And so like one of the things we are asking for is more funding, like to bring that up to, we're not even asking for anything wild. We're asking to bring it up to 9%. That would just bring us up closer to the G7 average. But, um, so it is a, it is partially an issue of more of more money, but it's also partially an issue of figuring out where that money needs to exactly go, mm. uh, and and what programs need to happen. And we think studying mental health parity would, would be an absolute would be a fantastic way of doing that. Like when I when I hear when I hear you kind of describe the the like the conversation with somebody that comes and they need help in all of these different areas and how all of those issues that they're facing in their lives, feeding their family, transportation, being able to work, being like the access to be able to get mm -hmm. to work and all the, like it, it so quickly becomes like so, so many layers of, of problems. And like how in your, in your line of work and in like in, in this, in the, I guess kind of like the universe of, of social work, like how, how, how do you even begin to start to try to untangle all of these problems that that are like layered and intertwined with each other like it seems like the complexity of it is you know j even just hearing it i i, I, I have a sense of overwhelm in my chest so i know i know that's the response because we have set up society in a way where those things exist in silos but really when you get right down to it what would solve all of the things i just mentioned wouldn't it be money? <laughs> uh, wouldn't it be money? And wouldn't it be things being free? And by free, I mean paid for by taxes. Yeah. Mm. Um, like once, so, oh, the bus pass is free. Whew, there goes that problem. Oh, we have a, we have, um, 
we no longer rely on food banks because food we control for food prices and there's no such thing as food deserts anymore because we have proper robust food security programs in Canada. <sighs> there goes that problem. Mm. Oh, uh, now we have free. Uh, we now we have a pharmacare plan. There goes that problem. I don't need to worry about my my son's medication anymore. All of those things become actually very simple. And I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of this like manufactured complexity that we have in Canada with all these siloed programs and problems that are extremely complex. And everyone has to like, you know, applying for your in employment insurance is different than applying for housing and applying for housing is different than applying for, you know, help with, with, with other programs and like help with daycare. Like it's all just so disparate. And so it becomes very overwhelming when there are so many things we could do to streamline streamline these programs and make them less mm. less onerous for the user, which is really what we want. We want people who are living this experience to have the easiest possible time mm. and for it to serve them in the best possible way. But what it would also do is reduce costs. Like we always say at CSW, you, you don't need to be afraid of compassion and caring. Like the most, the compassionate, the compassionate social policy is usually the cost effective one mm. because meeting people needs before a crisis is a crisis is so much cheaper right yeah right. and like it's just so much like it just an example of um of emergency rooms right mm -hmm. now because it's like sort of the only thing that that is obvious right it's the only mm -hmm. thing that is people know to do is if someone's in a mental health crisis they end up in the emergency room i'm probably going to quote an old figure but I, a few years ago it was like you know it was thousands of dollars per night to stay in an emergency room mm -hmm. You could, and that, and let's say that person is having a mental health crisis because they're they're unhoused and they might be start struggling with a substance use issue, and they end up in the emergency room to the tune of thousands of dollars per night, mm -hmm. right? You know what would have been cheaper? Yeah, <laughs> giving them a house yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for 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 months, even you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like so, if you meet people where they're at and give them the supports they need way way in advance, like starting in childhood, like let's say starting with daycare, starting with farms with pharmacare starting with parents having a basic income that they're not they're not destitute you know then we're going to end up not there all so many of these people are going to avoid ever having these really costly outcomes mm -hmm. the the other thing is is like uh the when i hear you talking about that i i think of my uncle who uh passed away last year and he mm, was sorry. um for periods of his life he was unhoused and had uh suffered from drug addiction and um, not only just the impact on him and his his life in trying to sort that stuff out, but um, he was also dyslexic and couldn't mm. um, couldn't really read. And so he could never fill out those forms or applications himself. He would have right. to get my mom to do it, who was also struggling. And so, you know, then his problem became her problem and it just sort of like snowballs. Um, and, and so like the, to me, that solution sounds like it makes a ton of sense. And I, I hear you say that it 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 is the cost effective solution probably most of the time, but it also sounds it sounds like a lot of money. I feel like there's probably a lot of stigma um, towards that idea in the sense that people think, well, fuck, that just costs so much, and like a, and uh, some like, form of like universal basic income or something. Like they just mm -hmm. think, oh, that, but that sounds like it costs a lot. And I'm curious, and it's like watering seeds. Yeah, you know what I mean. Instead of like. Do you know, like something that's going to like it takes a bit of time something to that's going to yes. present itself down the road yeah pay off down the road yeah. versus like the 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 like 
the the the, the immediate the immediate like the, the the I guess like the satisfaction that that's that the short lived satisfaction of something being taken care of immediately. Yeah, because when I hear you say that, I think, oh, that sounds so great, but it sounds expensive. It sounds like fifty years from now too. Right, yes. Yeah. Uh, is it? So this is you've identi- totally identified uh, both a, both a source of resistance and you know one of the problems is that we live in a reality of, of electoral of electoral cycles too, right? Yeah. And so who really wants Ooh. to be the person that implements something that costs billions of dollars full well knowing that you're not going to see the payoff for, you know, let's now there will be immediate payoff. We've seen with a lot of these basic income experiments that have been run, like the one in Ontario that was, you know, very unfortunately cut short. Unfortunately is even the wrong word. It was like actually um, like it was cruel. It was cruel to have cut it short the way they did. But there's also so that there was that study. There's also just tons of studies from other countries too. There's also the Mincom experiment in Manitoba from the 1970s. That's very famous that show that there are immediate payoffs, to basic income as well. But if you're talking about like childhood development and avoiding some of those like early childhood um, adverse experiences that we call ACEs that like go on to have negative Mm -hmm. impacts on people later in life that, yeah, you're not going to see that, that, that payoff and you're not gonna see that trickle down effect of making things cheaper in the future for an, for like a number of years. Mm-hmm. Does that mean it's a bad policy idea? No. Um, and then the other problem is, is that politics often like partisan politics, I mean, come into, um, come into policy discussions, right. Around, around this, because as I mean, it's a, it's a charged partisan issue where like, you know, certain people, certain political strikes, just stripes, just don't love the idea of just giving stuff to people mm-hmm. um, to which I would say, like, give them health care. But maybe they don't like that anyway. Maybe they would rather have private health care. But, you know, and so there have been some um, there have been some politicians, for instance, who have who have asked the uh, parliamentary budget office to cost out um, what it would cost to do basic income in Canada. And it came out as like, you know, an astronomical figure. But that's one way of that. Is, that was one sort of take on it. There are just like this idea of mental health parity, there's many different ways that that uh, a basic income could play out, um, like mm-hmm. different thresholds, different people that it's eligible for, you know, like that, who it goes to, the amount. Um, mm-hmm. And so it it really, it would really need to be a like a fully nonpartisan, like robustly studied exercise in developing once again, like a made in Canada approach that, <laughs> you know, it's our perspective and many economists perspective would be a, a really cost of a really fiscally responsible thing to do. These are all investments. Like they're, they're they're investments that they're in, you know, if we, if, if we want to do, if we want to create another business, business segment for us, like, yes, we're going to have to pay to make that business segment appear. And we expect that once that appears, it will generate revenue that will pay down the, the initial investment that we made and then, and then pay dividends many times over in the, into the future. And when that looking like a good idea. and when looking at, <laughs> <laughs> and when looking at something like universal basic income or um, these like child like access to, to childhood programs that can, that can prevent, you know, like a crazy web of, uh, of things that develop later into the future as you become an adult and enter mm-hmm. into, you know, your later education or your, or, or the workforce or whatever, then th- th- those are all like the, the uh, that if we could, if we could identify what the return on that, like, because when you price it as this is what the program costs, it's like, well, what does a program earn? 
Like, what is it? Mm. What is it? What do we get? What do we and gain from it? What does it, it cost we, not to do it? Yeah. Mm. And can we put like, figures around it so that we could see the difference between the investment and the return? Because when we only put the investment number down, because that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the, the return. You're going yeah. to you're, you're talk about the investment in terms of dollars. You're going to talk about the return in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of human experience and human outcomes. And the two things to the average human Canadian brain, money and human experience and weighing them against each other don't compute well for people. So can we put a number? Can we can we put a number next to it? Like, that's what I that's what I'd like to see there. So what you just what you just talked about is this huge field of study called uh, or just field called social return on investment. So there are lots of people working in the field of trying to figure out SROIs, social returns on investment, right? Uh, there's also like what, something in our association talks about is the idea of moving from a uh, gross national product to gross national wellness. Mm-hmm. So like it will take a, uh, it is, it is going to take like a paradigm shift. Like it is hard. It is a shift in, in how we think about things. The thing I'll say about basic income too, is that like even in our, in our even in our conversation about it today, like even though you guys are like you know getting it and like you know exploring it and not treating it as like this boogeyman, we're still putting it on this pedestal of like, well yeah we have like childcare and we have healthcare, but like basic income. So like what I would say is like we first of all we already have basic income. We have the Canada Child Benefit for people with families. We have GIS and OAS for seniors. That's basic income. That's literally physical money that goes to you. Basic income right? We already have it. You could also say that like sidewalks are, you know, basic income in kind. It's a service that you use that is given to you, right? As with everything else. And so, you know, what if we just called it like the adult, the adult payment? (laughs) I think that that sounds (laughs) terrible, but I I have not thought that through. But like, you know, we can work with a branding agency. We can can get someone, we can get a professional on this, but like, it, it doesn't have to be called, you know, universal basic income guarantee. Like, it's the stopgap payment. It's the, it's the, you know, whatever it is, it's just like OAS for seniors, CCB for people with kids. Not like the we, safety net, the we foundation. Already, exactly. <laughs> wow. That was very full circle. And we are at the top of the hour. I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it, I, I was, I was looking for the conversation that we had with, um, I forget the, uh, economists, um, at the start of COVID we spoke to, um, we were talking about universal basic income. I'm not sure if it was on the recording or just uh, afterwards but yes, I but he remember. said he said I would never say yes to a universal basic income unless I knew the specifics of it because yes. it would have to work and so yeah. like digging into what would really be feasible and what would work best not just feasible and from a financial perspective but like what would work best for that social return on investment yep. and and so like getting into those details I think is is what is like what, what we really to has to be done mm. to be yeah. able to and there would be level, and work. there would be levels to it like the same way that you know I I get a che- I get money from the government I just had a baby I get a money I get money yep. from the government and somebody who makes less money than Kyle and I combined is going to get a bigger check and somebody who makes more money than Kyle and I is going to get a smaller check and, and why is that socially that. acceptable like my, my question is like why is that why have we all accepted that right we're all like oh yeah I mean not everyone right there's always going to be those people who are like shouldn't be given that like money to anybody but like mostly we have societal buy-in of like, oh yeah, like they just had a baby. So they get like, they get that payment. Like what makes you more, although you are wonderful and you are very worthy and I'm sure your baby is very worthy. And I also get the payment as a parent too. She's like, okay. what, may- <laughs> what, what, um, what makes us more worthy than just a single guy who's yeah. struggling? 
Yeah. Why doesn't yeah. he get a payment? Yeah. My biggest frustration yeah. is that people like like I just can't believe that we don't all agree that just nobody should fall below the poverty line. Because if we all agree that that is the bare minimum, like yeah. everybody should be <laughs> poverty line and up, then and I then know why don't we just do what it takes to get there. And <laughs> and I know I know that this is that like the, that the bigger part of this is a human conversation and the human mm-hmm. experience and how we live and how we be, how we develop contentment and happiness in our lives and, and and that everybody deserves to have that opportunity to 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 have that. I'm I I I go back to numbers and I I struggle because because at the end of the day the government is going to zoom out and and people in Canada are 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 dollar signs yeah. for them and yeah. and why do we not do why does the government not do if you're going to run it like a business run it like so that everybody that is that is participating in your in your company can be as productive for your company as humanly possible and that we support those individuals so that they can be productive Mm -hmm. and so that those like yeah i mean it's it it drives me nuts like we had a conversation (laughs) yesterday uh with somebody who you know was talking about uh, this um this uh service this this uh or sorry this treatment that was not covered under msi and 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 getting that paying for that would be extremely challenging if not impossible and if that treatment is not received, then her working life gets cut in half. And then, then the government, the government's going to be like the government and everybody that in the community suffers from, from that loss of that person Uh not being able to go to work and live a productive life along with her. But like, I just, I don't, I don't know from a numbers perspective, let alone a fucking human perspective of right. like, which the, is more important, you know, like the community um, impact of having yeah. people suffer like Ooh, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sally, I, uh, the converted. Yeah. I want to, first of all, I want to say thank you. Um, you know, the, the, this, these are the types of conversations that we just, we, we really like just live to to sit and be a part of um the work you're doing is so vitally important we're so grateful that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat with us about uh about all of the things that go into into your work as the uh director of policy at the Canadian Association of Social Workers Social Workers so uh, thank you and and uh i know you're i know you've got a baby in there and your bladder's probably about to f- thank you thank you thank you and and uh, really this has been such a treat yeah thank you guys so much um it's like seriously it's an honor um i yeah i hope people think it's interesting and um you know thank you for the work you guys are doing because mm-hmm. it takes these conversations to to start those paradigm shifts towards mm-hmm. even just thinking about these things mm-hmm. because a lot of people like this is all stuff that a lot, you guys live with every day and you think about it every day, right? But there are a lot of people who who only uh, interact with these ideas in a crisis. Yes. You know, when something goes wrong in their lives. And so um, wouldn't it be nice if we all thought about it preemptively and set up mm-hmm. a society where none of, fewer of us were ever, ever find ourselves in a crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. This has been really great. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. 
And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.